Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. This is episode five. I'm very excited to be here. This is Ari Paparo. I'm here with Eric Franchi from Aperium Ventures and our special guest, Patience Hagen from the Wall Street Journal. Patience, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Ari. Um, so probably many people in ad tech have read your bylines and have seen you at conferences and talked to you. Tell us about your beat. You, you're covering Twitter, Google, Comcast. What else? Well, I cover digital advertising, which is, it's fun because it touches everything and it's like, it's a whirlwind. It's, it's a cyclone because it touches everything. And it's just been in so much upheaval over the past four years while I've been covering it. I've had a blast. I've learned a ton and like, I don't know. I feel like I'll never be the same just in terms of like my nerves. You know, like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure what? I'll never be the same. What a great summary of working in ad tech. I will never be the same. My nerves are shot. This is Eric, by the way. <laughs> yeah, Eric, I, I have the same reaction. So, I mean, do you think it's a harder beat than, you know, if you had to cover like oil and gas or something like that? Uh, yeah, because it changes every six months. It's like covering a totally different thing every six months. Oil and gas, I mean, how, you know, does that turn over and reinvent itself over and over again? I guess you have... <laughs> Maybe Elon Musk would take the place of the OPEC leaders or something like that in that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you have him parachuting in from not having even been an ad tech. And then, oh, my God. So, so what are the biggest stories going on? I think we, we could guess, but I'd love to hear your opinion. What are the biggest stories going on in digital advertising right now? All right. So let's, I'll just knock out Twitter first. As some people in the industry like to point out to me, like, hey, it's really not the biggest ad business. Why are you spending so much time on it? But Twitter, I mean, Twitter plays, it plays an outsized role in politics, not just in the U.S., but around the world. It's absolutely a key strategy for how our leaders communicate with the people. They monetize through ads. Elon's putting it to the test of, you know, can, can it still monetize through ads even if you reduce the content moderation, you know, by a lot, even if you try this revolutionary strategy? So that's just a fascinating test case there with huge consequences for democracies around the world. I, I guess, yeah. let's just go on that one for a second. I'll let you get okay. to your next story. So I feel the roller coaster of Twitter. You know, Here two we months, go. <laughs> two months ago, we we're all, we're all sure he's going to kill it. And then there was sort of this detente over the last month where, where it seemed, well, maybe Twitter will be okay. I don't know. And now yesterday, uh, as of the recording, they had a pretty big outage. Should advertisers care about any of that? Maybe it's a question for Eric also. Why do we care? If the ads work, we should buy them. If the ads don't work, we shouldn't. Yeah, I mean that that's basically my my, my sentiment on on this one. I think uh Patience has a great point in that uh for a lot of reasons um I think we all want Twitter to exist and be a be a viable service. I think step 1 that Elon made which was, you know, certainly controversial, but cutting costs massively, you know, was uh the right move to at least start, you know, the the path towards sustainability. It then also had knock-on effects, which, you know, obviously patients and others have covered with brands pulling back because um, there's less sales coverage and, um, you know, there's less sort of like, you know, engineers that know all of the back end. So you have some outages and everything like that. But the bottom line is, you know, Twitter is, is unfortunately for Twitter, not yet a must-buy. The ad product, you know, in an era where, you know, performance becomes, you know, paramount um, is not built for performance. So, yeah, it's like, I think at the end of the day, if Twitter drove performance or, you know, had like a great ad format that was designed for attention and video, so on and so forth, advertisers would buy it. I think that's where a lot of the work needs to be done. 
It's a Tesla car crash that we can't stop watching, I guess. Why do why you have to bring up Tesla again? <laughs> Touchy subject. I'm never going to live this down. All right. So, Patience, uh, what's, what's next on your list of crazy stories you're following? Okay. Do you want to hit Google next? Yeah, let's hit Google next. Yeah, they got a little bit going on over there. Not totally quiet. It's just fascinating the way antitrust authorities are scrutinizing their ad business. And sometimes I'm finally scrutinizing it after just letting it flourish wild and untamed, untrimmed, unharnessed for so long. Really interested in the DOJ complaint. You, I mean, you're like the perfect person to drill into it. And I've really enjoyed reading your commentary on Twitter and other places, Ari. I'm just absolutely fascinated to see how it'll play out. And if parts of Google's ad business are divested, that would just be a monumental shift for the ad industry. You know, it's like um, if the U.S. divested California, do you think that would change the <laughs> politics of North America? You know, like, uh, hey, this like this is just a big thing that's about to sh- that could really shake everything up in a year or so. Yeah, I would definitely start with Florida if we had to do uh, divestiture. <laughs> Patience, I, I actually have a, a, a question on this, and maybe just given the breadth of people that are not like ad tech product and, and operations people, you, you might have a POV or, or some intel on. So this was a deal that the DOJ approved. They approved it 15 years ago. The idea of this now being walked back and, you know, essentially sort of like saying, no, we should not have approved this 15 years ago, you know, when we were supposed to have done all the work and, you know, thought there were all the, all the scenarios, you know, people in my line of work are fairly concerned about that, right? Cause it's like, you know, that will then have a potential, you know, freezing effect at worst, or, you know, sort of cooling effect on, you know, large scale M&A, right? If, you know, M&A deals have a thesis that this can be, you know, a 5, 10, 15 year transformation for a company, but it could potentially be, you know, sort of like walk back and, you know, and, and stopped or, or reversed, um, you know, people are, I think, rightfully concerned. Have you heard of anything, you know, sort of like any conversations around that? I think that's a fascinating story to look into is like, does it change what deal makers like think they can do? Does it change the way they contemplate the possibilities? I think just the discussion about it has already had a chilling effect on big tech acquisitions for the past few years, don't you? For sure. Why are you going to you know put billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars in some cases to to work when um you can just be forced to divest and change and you know re- reverse course it um. Yeah, I mean, these are obviously for the largest companies contemplating the largest acquisitions. But, um, you know, again, that's a real driver of investment. That's a real driver of, of M&A. So uh, I think um, yeah, it's definitely worth looking into that one specifically because it can it, have implications. It's also quite a miss, if I can just jump in here, which is that uh, during the DoubleClick acquisition, I was an employee of DoubleClick, um, the investigation, it took about a year to get approved. It was entirely focused on search, um, the investigation. The the only thing that was objected to was DoubleClick-owned search agency called Performex that it ended up having to divest as part of the acquisition. And that had nothing to do with the synergy of the deal. Google had no interest in any of our search business. Total so, mess. <laughs> it was a total, total mess. mess. It's <laughs> Unbelievable. Now, in retrospect, I don't think the deal should have been stopped. I, I think the deal was fine. Um, I think it's the subsequent behavior that's kind of the bigger issue. Yeah. Is anyone paying attention to the other antitrust case, the search one that's further along and is going to trial this summer? Yeah, of course they are. It's just, uh, just this one, you know, reporters are like, um, 
they have the attention span of gnats. Like you, you throw something new in front of their face, like I have to chase after that. And then they come back, you know, they come back a month later and they're like, oh, what? Oh, oh, there was another story. But yeah, absolutely. I think that's going to be a fascinating trial. Maybe one that strikes more at the heart of Google's power, don't you think? I mean, I, you know, so a lot of people see a scenario playing out where Google settles the, the more recent complaint by agreeing to divest those businesses. And that is almost like a sacrificial lamb that might maybe even help them protect the dominance of search. I've been a big advocate of that. I think it's actually it would be a very smart move for Google to divest their network business effectively. Uh, it's the slowest growing, lowest margin business they have. But I think the search lawsuit, which I haven't been following as closely and I haven't personally read the complaint, but I think the crux of it is that the Department of Justice is trying to prevent Google from doing these distribution deals with Apple and Firefox and other people like that because their outsized market power means they can price out Bing or other competitors from getting those deals. And that could have just an immediate uh, impact on Google's finances if that were to be limited, their ability to do those deals. Those are really important deals for them. Actually, I just wanted to ask you about something you tweeted, Ari, about Google before we move on. Oh, God. Um, what did I say? Move on to the, the <laughs> you know, whatever fresh new hell awaits. I think we all know. Part of your tweet storm on the DOJ complaint. You pointed out that it doesn't call for any buy-side divestiture. And I believe you suggested like buy-side divestiture might be a preferred outcome for Google. Why Why do you say that? Yeah, I, I have second thoughts about that. Um, but yeah, just as background here. So um, the complaint talks quite a bit about the buy-side, about DV360 and about um, Google Display Network as being participants in various schemes uh, like Bernanke that uh, Google's accused of being anti-competitive. And yet the complaint does not ask for any remedies on the buy side. Uh, they only ask for a divestiture of the sell side. I think I made the point to you and it was quite a good soundbite that DV360 was the unindicted co-conspirator in this case. Mm -hmm. I'll just repeat that because I'm just so happy with myself for coming up with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so get a bumper sticker. <laughs> the ad tech influencer. <laughs> so I, I did make that point in Twitter, but I, I actually don't think it's as true as I did when I tweeted it. It's a little more complicated. Where the way Google thinks about it, uh, I'm projecting here, is that they have this effectively monopoly on the sell side, and they think of that as kind of like their farm to farm or their their mountains to mine, and then they use it to the benefit of their buy side where they're able to move margin around and make the display network and DB360 more effective by letting those bids win more often or capture more market share. And so it is a kind of a two-way dynamic there. But the buy side is, you know, very large and very profitable and probably growing faster than the sell side. So I kind of take back my sentiment about them wanting to get rid of the buy side. Okay, that's all right, so Google, we have what else? we have two two antitrust suits, and then this week was a fun week. So I'll just jump in here. So Google effectively tried to outrun Microsoft um, with a vaporware announcement of a new AI. Um, so I think the timeline is today is Thursday. We're recording this. So on Wednesday, uh, the OpenAI folks were up in Redmond about to make giant announcements with Microsoft. So on Tuesday. Google put out a very long blog post about how fantastic their chat AI is, and it's called Bard, and you can't see it yet. It's in testing. 
I think this is a pretty classic, uh, you know, vaporware announcement rushed out at the last minute, but that's my opinion. Uh, Patience, what's, what's your take on it? That it was rushed out, that it was rushed out. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I thought it was just a really funny thing that uh, Microsoft CEO Satya said shortly before they their announcement. He said something to the effect of, today Google is going to dance, and I want you all to remember that it was us who made them dance. <laughs> That's savage. savage. <laughs> he is savage. <laughs> Absolutely savage. Yeah. But what in terms of what they're putting forward, like th- there were some flaws. Those flaws showed up. People are already pointing out the flubs. But everyone is also just kind of in awe of like what this could mean for the future of search. Yeah, Google's uh, market cap went down by $100 billion yesterday. Um, I saw a tweet. I can't confirm it, but I saw a tweet that it was the single worst day for their stock ever, except when they had an earnings announcement that missed or something like that. So is this that big of a deal? Like, is Google, Google has been sort of a, uh, you know, a unstoppable force in search, at least for, you know, a decade. I use it hundreds of times a day. Is this a real risk to them? Uh, Eric, you want to take that one first? Yeah, short term, this is an overreaction. This is an overreaction by Google, you know, presumably, right? You know, they, they should have been more measured and thoughtful and strategic about how they respond to ChatGPT and OpenAI. I think this is clearly an overreaction by the, by the market, you know, taking a hundred billion dollars off the market cap for, you know, sort of like flubbing and, and, you know, putting something out the door when the core business is still so strong and throwing off so much cash and, will for the foreseeable future. I, I think that's an overreaction by the market. But absolutely, like, you know, uh, long term, this is the first real threat that we've seen to just the core of search and how search is done and the implications for it. And, you know, the users being so excited about a new uh, way to do it that we've ever seen. ChatGPT is the fastest growing consumer app ever. In you know the short time it's been out, I actually don't even know how, how long it's been out now. Um, it's reached over 100 million users. We haven't seen anything like this before. So obviously, you know, it hit the code red at Google, and everybody's scrambling. But um, you know, I think this is a a long term game. You know, at its core, like you know, getting people to change behaviors and delivering an awesome product experience, everything like that. I think we can all see it. I just question if it's like worth taken a hundred billion dollars off the market cap of one of the you know best companies in the world it's really early like basically are consumers going to be typing in paragraphs of prompts into a big box and getting results or is there a lot more product shoes to drop here about the ways consumers interact with this general type of technology um what, uh, what are you hearing in the market are people overreacting underreacting they're reacting i think i agree with <laughs> i guess what eric said it does seem like a bit of an overreaction to lose lose that much market share over, you know, what is a transformative technology? It's just not perfect yet by any means. You know, and then honestly, if we could look back at history and look at some technologies that came out with a lot of bugs and still proved to be transformative. If you remember the the first demo of the iPhone, it still didn't didn't properly work. They were just on stage demoing it even though it didn't work, right? Yeah, and um, it probably took a couple of years before most mainstream yeah. consumers like really got why the iPhone was so transformative. Yeah, every every great company has products that just they wish they never would have rolled out, right? Like go back to 
Facebook or Meta and Beacon, go back to Amazon phone or the attempt at a, at a phone. I mean, you need to take big swings and some of them don't work out. But over time, those companies obviously executed and, you know, their core businesses uh, remain fantastic. Yeah, I think there's a lot of stories here. There's there's the story about just will consumers adopt this type of technology versus keyword kind of searching and or the early adopters are absolutely saying yes. Um, there's a second story about can Google innovate? Then the third story, and this is one I want to spend a little time on, is how much of a threat is this to Google's advertising model? In my point of view, I'll just give it right to the start. I think it's a very big threat to their advertising model. And the example I like to think about is um, if you're planning a trip, travel is probably the most lucrative vertical that Google makes billions of dollars a year on. Not planning a trip, you might search for flights and for hotels and for things to do. And every time you do those searches and click on some ads, Google is just, you know, ringing the cash register. And it's painful and it take, could take hours to plan a family trip. But Google's making money every step of the way. They're in effect, they're making money partially on the inefficiency of the process, partially on the efficiency of giving me the answers I want, but partially on the inefficiency. And in the new world, you type in or say to a prompt, uh, I want a family vacation for under $1,000 a night and somewhere warm on these dates. And it gives you an answer. And potentially, you're you're still making money because the hotels and the flights that are booked by this AI are all paying fees and things like that. But it could be vastly more efficient. And, it, and it's a different kind of model. It's not bidding on a keyword. It's like affiliate. It's like paying, having deep partnerships with airline companies and with uh, you know hotel companies to get paid when the AI recommends it. It seems like it's a very different experience. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, this is where it gets exciting, obviously, for, for somebody that's, uh, that, that invests in this stuff and, you know, looks for, looks for transformation. I think, uh, the points you made were great. I agree with them. I, I sort of like also think about it from the perspective of Google's core business was built for a desktop search world, right? That product, you know, has been iterated on for many years, but that's, that's its core. And, you know, it's adjusted somewhat for mobile. And then, you know, there's, you know, obviously it, it, it's infused in things like maps and travel search, so on and so forth. But if we're at the beginning of an era where the way people search change in terms of, you know, asking questions, being a little bit more directive, expecting a singular and best response, I think that's interesting. No longer a wall of uh, responses that you need to figure out, you know, which is the right one for you. No longer six different ads, right? It's like, what is the best response for me? I think that becomes interesting. I think number two, as people start to, you know, perform searches across different devices, again, it becomes about what is the best answer because I'm not even looking at anything right now in the case of like voice search or Siri or all these like home devices. So yeah, I think this entire thing is up for grabs and who knows, Google could end up innovating and acquiring and, you know, sort of adjusting over time, but it's never felt, you know, so right for, for another company and other technology. And um, this is a giant business, right? Like the performance marketing business is bigger than the television business. So this is like so exciting. Well, you said acquiring, but that is an interesting problem. Uh, so let's say somebody else innovates and creates the ultimate travel AI planner with affiliate links and makes lots of money and Google wants to acquire them. Uh, it doesn't appear like Washington or Brussels or wherever is going to let them. 
Patience, what uh, do you have a take on this situation? My take is like wandering around in a state of frenetic fascination, asking people like you for their take on it and asking people in power what they plan to do about it. Right. I think there's also there's another angle, which is, you know, Microsoft coming out really strong this week with all their announcements and the edge integration, et cetera. But it's not necessarily Microsoft's game to lose. Um, they're taking the first shot. But I think there's going to be quite a bit of activity trying to capture the consumer's activity and, and making sense of it. Yeah, they've got momentum behind it. Between Satya and Sam Altman, I mean, they are being aggressive. Some of the one-liners that they're dropping, like evidenced by what you said earlier, I think Sam said something, uh, you know, it's Google is a lethargic search monopoly. It's like, holy cow. And these, and these are two, like, you know, mega geniuses with mega resources teaming up with each other to take on Google. It's, this is exciting. There's also been reporting, I think Kara Swisher talked about this in her podcast, I can't remember the source, but there's been reporting that Google in the past has really struggled with the idea of creating, you know, non-click-based advertising around things like travel, uh, that they know that consumers are sort of dissatisfied with the current model, but they have this massive innovators dilemma where uh, they will lose money if they improve search. Um, and this may be the thing that forces them to do it. Imagine if affiliate marketing becomes the, the wave of the future. I mean, like the core, like just rinky dink 1996 uh, business model makes a, makes a massive yeah. comeback. Like there's no new search ads model, like, like not a new, a new format for search ads. You just like search ads have to seed to something else. They're kind of recommendations. Um, you know, using right. the travel example, the AI could just say, you know, here's what we recommend. Click here to book this hotel. It's closer to affiliate than to advertising because if the AI is not going to recommend the wrong hotel for you just because they have a higher bid, or I don't think they would. Maybe they, maybe I'm naive. Um, all right, so we've beaten Google to death. That horse is dead. <laughs> so back to you, Vaishans. What else are you covering? Um, you've you've quite a bit in the in the Comcast cable TV CTV world. That's right. That's absolutely right. I um, I've been covering CTV for a few years now, and recently started covering. Comcast and Charter as well for the cable distribution side of things. But I'm really interested in kind of the CTV wars we're seeing now, like Roku versus Fire TV versus Comcast and Charter trying to make a bid against them with their joint venture, Zumo. It's a, you know, everyone's fighting to be kind of that gatekeeper for the streaming services. Is the crux of the competitive issue, you know, consumers and their subscriptions to content, or is the ad tech important in this model? It's all about ad tech. I mean, like the growth that Roku's been able to brag about for the past couple of years, yeah, it's been driven by the strength of their ad business. That growth is slowing now. That's something they've had to been candid about with Wall Street, and we're going to hear from them again next week to see how that's going. I think Avon is like the next frontier for ad growth and it's all going to be about who's going to reinvent that ad experience get those tv dollars over to digital right so you start with the consumer you sell them a roku box um and then you get the viewership and then you invest in ad tech so that you can not just monetize with plain advertising but an efficient you know pseudo walled garden around those consumers that's kind of the, the play which player do you think has the strongest 
Well, I'm a former employee of Freewheel and Comcast, so I'm a little biased. Um, but I, I do think the Freewheel stack is very impressive. Um, now that they, they've always been the leading ad server in CTV and now they have Beeswax, which was, you know, a pretty powerful DSP. They should be able to make something of that. And it's a pretty big business as is. I think Roku with its acquisition of DataZoo also has, you know, very high quality DSP as part of their offering. We interviewed um, Roku. It was one of the most watched episodes in the history of Marketecture TV. So you should check out that on Marketecture TV. There's a free version as well as a paid longer version. There was some news this week also. Um, Brian Barletta, our partner at Sounds Profitable, wrote an excellent newsletter and, and podcast about Spotify and its investment in ad tech because the podcast advertising world is also has some of the similar problems, which is it's hard to advertise, hard to get the tech work, but Spotify kind of building their own extended walled garden with ad serving and server-side insertion is another kind of trend that seems to be happening. So it all kind of, kind of starts sounding the same. I think it's interesting on the, on the Spotify front in particular, and we, we've talked about this, you know, a, a little while ago, you know, podcasting, while, you know, it's interesting and people love it from a consumer perspective, it's still a relatively small market, right? It's a $2 billion market. I think, you know, there's, there's vectors for growth there for sure. But the overall like shift from terrestrial radio, I think it's, you know, properly called to streaming. I mean, that's probably a 10x market size. So I think, you know, Spotify investing in ad tech to, you know, get ahead of what is just a wave of increased consumer adoption and subscription fatigue and the opportunity to like, you know, innovate on monetizing, you know, what is again a sort of, you know, kind of, kind of wall that's, that's increasingly, you know, becoming ad supported with, with audio seems like a great move to me. I think it's a big opportunity there. That's why we started covering it as part of architecture also. Um, or let's talk about some, some of the latest news other than the big AI announcements, uh, that came through this week. Critio, there's some rumors, uh, some reporting on Reuters that Critio was looking at strategic options. This isn't the first time that they've gone down this route and their stock is at kind of all time highs or at least 52 week highs. A lot of people are kind of scratching their heads as to what's going on here. Um, cause Critio appears to be doing pretty well. Um, multi-billion dollar public company, but maybe testing waters a little bit. Eric, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. Certainly just, just speculating. You know, I think there's certainly, you know, you just hear about the potential private equity rollups that, you know, are uh, being planned, being, you know, discussed, you know, th those are real, they're, they're out there. There's, um, you know, a lot of dry powder on the sidelines, particularly from a private equity standpoint. And I think a lot of uh, smart investors that have a thesis on the space. And, you know, Critio has, um, I think, a pretty good offering when you think about its positioning around retail media and the future of retail media. So, you know, if you're a PE firm with billions of dollars to put to work, you know, you'd like an anchor to build around. You have a thesis around, uh, you know, what are the highest growth markets? You know, it's one of two things, right? It's retail media, commerce media, or it's CTV. So, you know, you can have, a, I think, a great anchor with, um, with Critio, uh, being in, in your sort of like your, your first or your, your core deal, uh, from there. That said, the stock is expensive. I think, um, you know, it's trading at a, you know, like a PDE north of 20. And folks think that, you know, it gets taken out for a much higher. So I think that's the, the real question there. But, um, yeah, for sure. I think, you know, PE, uh, wants to come into the space, sees a, a great opportunity. And Critio is a, is a logical anchor for, you know, for a, a retail media 
open garden approach. Yeah, some folks on Twitter, once again, like all the content on this podcast is basically sourced on Twitter. <laughs> but some folks on Twitter were saying, well, this is bearish for retail media because Critio's representative of retail media. And if I can't, they I couldn't can't, disagree can't more. make it. I, yeah, I could not disagree more. <laughs> but go on. <laughs> No, please. Uh, like, because we had, uh, we had Connor McKenna from, uh, Luma here a couple weeks ago and he was talking endlessly about, not endlessly, but excitedly about how great retail media opportunity is. And Eric, you seem to share the same point. It's much the opposite. The fact that, you know, there's some interest on Creo is validation that, you know, this thing is just getting started. You know, infrastructure to power the next hundred or more retail media networks, uh, you know, is yet to be a, a winner in that game. Extend that out to not just retail media, but, you know, just like first party networks, a la Uber, a la Lyft, a la Instacart. Um, they, they all need sort of modern infrastructure. So, um, no, I think it's right. a massively bullish signal. Isn't it almost surprising Credio hasn't got bought yet? Because we've watched retail media be such a hot space over the last few years. Like Credio's value was always there. And I, I mean, you know, I, I got to think they've they've been getting a lot of interest over the past few years. I know they've been getting interest for the past few years. Yeah, my guess is that they they really need to split up the retargeting business and the retail media business to get the value out of yes. both. And they, they think mm-hmm. they have to go private to do that. That would be my guess. But I don't know of any information. That's a great point. Uh, so the other news this week, um, and we'll finish off on this, is uh, State of the Union. So uh, President Biden had a very eventful State of the Union. Um, but <laughs> aside from the stuff that got covered in the media, there was also an ad tech angle. So um, I, I heard some excerpts. Basically, he called for um, big tech to be regulated, for uh, the big tech to stop targeting our children with ads uh, in various forms. I'm not sure exactly what this policies were that he's proposing and then specifically called for a data privacy bill. I think this is kind of interesting because it seems like everyone actually wants a data privacy bill, um, but it doesn't seem to be happening. I think the industry wants a data privacy bill. Um, so, um, Patience, any uh, any thoughts on that? Are you hearing anything about how people feel about this? Um, I'm hearing everyone just loudly agree with it. I haven't seen a single person have resisted, you know, um, even certain people at the IAB who sometimes react strongly to the privacy charges haven't seen anyone stand up and say that they oppose it. You know, it's in the kind of rhetoric that everyone kind of supports, like greater privacy for children, et cetera. The whole federal privacy bill is just starting to be deja vu for me because as long as I've been covering this industry, ever since 2019, I've heard people say, this is the year Congress will pass a federal privacy bill. You know, when when will it finally yeah. come? It's just is is just my big question. It's one of those things where everyone wants it, but it's really dangerous because if it's written poorly, <laughs> they could just it could really cause an undue amount of burden on the whole media and advertising business, which is a big part of our economy. I'm wondering, like, do we have we taken enough time that we can learn from from GDPR? We can learn from the examples of other countries, or are we just going to kind of embark on our own way? Kind of yeah, ideally, we would learn a lot from GDPR because GDPR has is, is been pretty effective in a lot of ways and it's overburdensome in certain ways. And I think, you know, people can look at it and come up with some pretty good learnings. Um, I'm worried that no one will actually do that and they'll just copy like the California law, which is, you know, a bunch of nonsense written by uh, people on Reddit. I read this. I, I, I did not watch it um, and I didn't read it in, in its entirety, but but I read, you know, I think the pulled quotes around this. And uh, I had a completely different take, actually. 
I read this and it was about um, protecting, um, you know, our children's data, protecting, there, there was something, it, it was, it was not just about data, but it was about uh, mental health and, you know, the rise in depression and, you know, everything like that around children. I read this as being squarely about TikTok. And, you know, maybe it's because, you know, I'm sort of like thinking about that in general, because I think that's a, that's another sort of like interesting discussion we, we, we can have in terms of its rise of an advertising business. And, you know, the fact that, you know, there, there's some folks that believe, you know, it's sort of a giant uh, surveillance tool by the CCP and or, uh, you know, active, uh, you know, sort of like war by the CCP in terms of, you know, uh, the, the U.S. gets uh, one version and, you know, uh, you know the Ch Chinese children get a, a far different version that's about education and, and not funny dances and everything like that. I read that. And again, maybe this is just sort of, sort of like, you know, it's it's on the mind. It's the green green BMW theory. You see a green BMW once you start to see it everywhere. I read that as like a comment about TikTok and maybe a little bit of a nudge towards the CCP. I could be completely wrong here. I could be no. a conspiracy theorist, no, but that's what I read. Great. I think you have great spidey senses, Eric. Yeah, I Thank think you. there's definitely something there. And I think Josh Hawley, the Republican troll in Congress, he, um, he proposed a bill that was very focused on this. Like, I think it was like no social media under 16 or something like that. I may be getting that wrong. So apologies, but uh, there might be bipartisan, um, movement on the teenager thing before a generic privacy bill, you know, makes any progress because it's the second, the latter is much more complicated, but I guess only time will tell. So I'm going to call it here. So um, let's uh, let's close this out. So Patience, thank you so much. This is a great conversation. Uh, you can find Patience writing, obviously, at the Wall Street Journal. Eric, thanks for being here. Thank you, Patience. Thank you, guys. Love it. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.